Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius, and this is the Hand Toolbook Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Have you ever tried to carve a Celtic weave? Or maybe you've tried to carve a ball and clawfoot? Well, how about carving a bouquet of flowers sitting on top of a life-sized violin? I accept I have some limitations in what I can do with wood. Generally, this means minimizing the gaps in dovetail joints. However, today's book is from David Estley, and he had no such limitations. In fact, it's safe to say that his work is some of the most spectacular carving I have ever seen. Before we dive into the book, I'd like to give a shout out to James Brink, who recommended this book a while ago. And while we're on the topic of thanks, a big thank you to Jeremy Hine, who signed up as a new Patreon, as well as my existing Patreons Robert, Max, Eric, John, Debbie, Greg, Christian, Camille, Brett and Henry, for your continued support of the show. David Estley passed away last year at the age of 75, and I'd never heard of him before hearing about this book recommendation. But look, I should probably clarify that I only know two woodcarvers by name, Mary May and Chris Pye. And I really cannot claim to have any form of competence in the art whatsoever so I'm probably not the best judge of how famous he was. By all accounts, he may have been the leading woodworker of recent times, and if not the best, certainly one of the masters. When we're talking about wood carving in this context, we're not talking about carving a couple of patterns on a frame saw. Instead, we're talking about incredibly intricate depictions of objects in 3D in wood. Think of a bouquet of flowers rendered in a pale white wood, and you're not far wrong. It's a different world, and I'll be explicit here, although I own a few carving gouges, my interest and abilities related to service details, simple geometric patterns, and of course, chiseling in the odd manta ray line carving onto a plane or workbench or something like that. If I want an acorn or an apple, I'm turning it as best as I can on the lathe. I don't even know where to start with a 3D rendering of a flower. And yet... As I read the book, there were themes and discoveries that felt familiar, even though the execution of them is beyond me. But first, let's go back a little bit, and I'll give you a broad profile on two important characters of the book, David Esterly, the author, and Grinling Gibbons. In 1974, David Esterly, an aspirant literary aficionado, at a whim decided to go to a Grinling Gibbons display in London. It was a decision that set the course of his life as from that day forward, his primary creative medium became wood, and not words. Yeats and Platonius, the subject of his doctorate, were left behind for good. Well, mostly for good. There's quite a few classical allusions in this book. He was self-taught, and by virtue of a semi-hermit-like focus on the art, and I guess humble financial commitments, he managed to dedicate himself to pursuing carving as a passion and as a career. This development is a recurring theme of the book, which blends the, air quotes, present day of the work on the Gibbons restoration with historical tangents that explain how he became the carver he ultimately became. Think autobiography mixed with murder mystery, and you're not far wrong. A book that sprang to mind as a comparison is Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, where the backstory and the reveals are critical to the advancement of the plot. So the present-day subject of the book is the restoration of the Grinling Gibbons carvings at Hampton Court. This fire was in 1986, 
So you'll understand when I say present day in air quotes, that's kind of what I mean. Estley would go on to be instrumental in the restoration of the lost carvings, and he spent a large portion of his life in England, but ultimately this California-raised American would die in upstate New York, leaving behind incredible works of art. If you do a quick Wikipedia or Google look up on his botanical head, you'll understand the stature of his art. Think a green man made of flowers and leaves and natural themes. The attention to detail and realism is absolutely boggling. Grinling Gibbons, on the other hand, was a 16th century English sculptor and woodcarver, known for his work in England, including Windsor Castle and Hampton Court Palace, St. Paul's Cathedral, other London churches and Trinity Colleges at Cambridge and Oxford. He's widely regarded as the finest woodcarver in England, and is probably the only one whose name is widely known amongst the general public. Most of his work was in limewood, tilia wood, and he is famous for especially decorative Baroque garlands and natural scenes that decorated palaces and churches, but he also produced some furniture and some smaller relief blocks with figurative schemes. He was appointed as the master carver to George I, and Charles II and James II also continued this trend of using him as the royal carver. A nice myth about the man is that he would include a closed pea pod in his work and only carve it open once he'd been paid. If the pea pod was left shut, it supposedly showed that he'd not been paid for his work. Then, in 1986, there was a fire and extensive damage to Hampton Court, and many of his carvings were damaged as a result. This is the effective beginning of the book. Let's take a look at the blurb. It sums the book up nicely. Awestruck by the sight of a Grinling Gibbons carving in a London church, David Estley chose to dedicate his life to the art, its physical control, intricate beauty, and intellectual demands. Forty years later, he's the foremost practitioner of Gibbons' forgotten technique, which revolutionized ornamental sculpture in the late 1600s. After a fire at Hampton Court Palace in 1986 destroyed much of Gibbons' masterpiece, the job fell to David Estley to restore his idol's work to its former glory. It turned out to be the most challenging year in Estley's life, forcing him to question his abilities and delve deeply into what it means to make something well. Estley breathes life into the world of wood carving and deftly illustrates the union of man and materials necessary to create a lasting work of art. He also describes the determination, concentration and skill that go into achieving any form of excellence. I think the narrative had two main areas of interest for me. The first is David's journey from struggling student to master. It's fascinating to understand how badly he wanted to surpass, understand, excel and match Gibbons' work, and the realizations he had about art as he went along this route. Whether it's something simple, such as his begrudging acceptance of sharpening as something he had to do, or his experimentation with different woods, I would suggest that the book has a resonance with any woodworker. And there are some great quotes and thoughts to go with the stories. One of the favourites of mine was, To carve is to be shaped by the wood, even as you are shaping it. It reminds me in a way of Rogowski's line of thought, that you are not working on the wood at the bench, you are working on yourself. Another, At my own workbench I slowly graduated to different kinds of mistakes. The quality of my errors improved. And then one final quote for anyone who has broken something and then fixed it. 
form that follows failure incorporates the random mishaps of life to the carving's advantage. I'm reminded by this that every failure, every broken dovetail or crack line in a piece of oak is a design opportunity, and that by embracing these mistakes and incorporating them into my work, I not only become more comfortable with the inevitable failure, but open myself up to the possibilities of taking those failures and making a better piece. And in a way, the counterpoint of this theme is also there. The author recounts how he examined some details on a carving and found them perfectly executed, even in places that were out of view and were impossible to view from the floor, the 15 feet below the carving. An aspirational standard of excellence, and a reminder that maybe our work will be studied by future generations in ways that are impossible to imagine today. I'll be honest here, I take this on board with a pinch of salt. I'm more a country joiner here than a perfectionist, and if you're going to x-ray my mortise and tenons, there's bound to be some pretty ugly surprises in there. But there's another view, I guess. Church sculptors creating the back of their statues perfectly because everything is visible to God. Perhaps there's a metaphor in there somewhere. And perhaps this obsession is at the heart of excellence. Which got me to thinking about whether I really wanted to do excellent work or whether I wanted to do quality work. And the book's full of ideas like that. And I think that they're worth pondering. In fact, I'd probably go as far as suggesting that you spread the book out over a few weeks of reading. Read a bit, stop at a logical point, and then spend some time mulling over the thoughts before progressing. If you've read Krenov's Cabinet Maker's Notebook, it's very similar to that in that regard. Take your time on the journey. It will reward a slow and careful reading. The second major element of the book is the description and discussion on the work, and the investigating and, well, the mystery novel elements of the book, which covers off a lot of intriguing aspects of the actual carving. This is set against the backdrop of David's desire to see Gibbon's work exhibited, and his fervent wish for this to be a catalyst for a new school of carvers. I won't spoil this part of the story by drawing out the spoilers and plot elements here, but I found this aspect of the book to be interesting, possibly even gripping, although I'd never heard that phrase applied to the application of historical sanding methods before. Bear with me, us hand tool woodworkers are a funny breed. You might be tempted to think that a book of this nature is a bit dry. I'd like to close this review with a short excerpt that I feel will do justice to the author's style and hopefully put your mind at ease about the ease of reading. Like the others, this chisel was lying with the blade towards me, so I give it a little gunslinger's twirl and the handle drops into my palm. Then I grasp the shaft of the blade with my other hand. I'm right-handed, but the stroke will be from the left, in the leaf's own direction. You have to carve ambidextrously, or else waste time by constantly having to turn the wood around. Now the first stroke, long and across the grain. A nice zip as the blade cuts, like the feel and sound you get when you turn the crank of a pencil sharpener, but more delicate. I'm using a fine crisp wood, so there's not so much resistance to working across the grain. Nonetheless, I give the tool a little twist as I push it, easing the cut by adding another slicing motion. The whole body propels the blade, arms and shoulders moving with it, torso moving slightly the other way in compensation. 
the stomach muscles push the blade. A pleasing twist of the whole body, like kayaking when you do it right. A faintly nutty aroma from the cool chips as they fall from the blade. Each is different from the others. Each is a memory of a chisel stroke. It is not like stone or marble carving, where you have only a few chisels and they model the medium by knocking it away. In wood carving, you slice, and that slice leaves the shape of the blade behind on the wood. So if you're doing complicated forms, you need many different chisels. A hundred chisels, like a hundred different thoughts, a hundred ideas to propose to the wood. So in conclusion, The Lost Carving is 288 pages long, and it's written by David Estley. You can find the book on Amazon, and as at September 2020, it costs $10 for a Kindle version, and $17 for a paperback. In this case, it's a book I'd probably leave towards the Kindle version. The book's a good autobiography, and I felt that by the end of it I understood the author's story, and he'd raise some interesting thoughts. Academia and conservators are not a world I'm familiar with. And as a businessman, I guess I always thought they were a bit purer and a bit less petty. This book certainly gave me a view into that world, and it doesn't sugarcoat any of the realities David faced. While I'm a long way from David on his skill level, his struggles and journey echo elements of my own time at the bench, I think the book will have universal appeal. Admittedly, I'm probably too scared to recommend a woodworking book to my wife, but I feel that if she did pick it up, she'd probably finish it. For me, Rogowski, Korn, Hiller are the standout excellent autobiographical books in the woodworking world. And I wouldn't quite put this up there with them, but I'm glad I read it. I learnt a lot about the philosophy and the practice of wood carving, and I think that when I'm ready to pick up Chris Pye's book again and give it a serious go, I'll be better because of reading this book. As a result, I'm giving the book a 6.5 out of 10 ranking in the category autobiographies. I think it's worth the money, and I think it's worth your time to give it a read. So that's it for now, Woodworms. And remember, go incorporate some carving into your next project, and keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favorite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying that you'd like me to feature on a future episode, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes.